This is episode 232 of the Books, Shows, Tunes, and Mad Acts podcast. This episode is titled Free Speech with Suzanne Nossel. Welcome to Books, Shows, Tunes, and Mad Acts, the show about stuff we like. I'm your host, Jennifer Crittenden, and sometimes I'm lucky enough to be joined by my co-host, Bill Aho, who has an ear for good music and an eye for the extraordinary. Books, Shows, Tunes, and Mad Acts is brought to you by Discreet Guide, a training company for improving your speaking and writing skills. We hope you enjoy the show. I am so pleased to welcome a guest to the show. Suzanne Nossel is with us. She's the Chief Executive Officer of PEN America. So welcome to the show, Suzanne. Thank you. Thanks for having me. She currently serves as the CEO of PEN America, which is the leading human rights and free expression organization. Since joining in 2013, she's doubled the organization's staff, budget, and membership and overseen groundbreaking work on free expression in Hong Kong and China, Myanmar, Eurasia, and the U.S. Her prior career spanned government service in both the Obama and Clinton administrations and leadership roles in the corporate and nonprofit sectors. She served as CEO of Human Rights Watch and as Executive Director of Amnesty International. She's a magna cum laude graduate of both Harvard College and Harvard Law School. She writes frequently and widely about human rights and freedom of speech. And her recent book, I was so excited to get this in the mail yesterday, is Dare to Speak, Defending Free Speech for All. And it was published in 2020. It's really an excellent book. Congratulations, Suzanne, on that great job. Thank you so much. Yeah, I was really pleased with it, and we're going to talk a little bit about it, but I've got uh, some other questions, too, just about current events and all kinds of things happening with free speech. But to kick us off here, let's do a little bit of myth-busting, so to speak. So in everyday conversations, what is one thing that you think Americans get wrong about free speech? Sure. Well, thanks for having me. Uh, I'd say the number one thing that people get wrong about free speech is that they don't understand the parameters of the First Amendment, and specifically that the First Amendment only applies to governments uh, and restricts the ability of government to ban and punish speech, but has no real direct application to, for example, private companies or private universities or Uh, Twitter mobs. And so, so many of the controversies over free speech that we debate about today have very little to do with government intervention. It's not about a legislator or even the president of a private, of a public university impinging upon speech. And so in order to protect free speech and address current threats to free speech, we really would need to widen the aperture beyond just the parameters of the First Amendment. The First Amendment remains very uh, important, uh, but it's not a panacea. And there are many questions that it just doesn't answer. You know, one of the things I really liked about your book was breaking some of these things down into such accessible, but such beautifully written prose. So, for example, in the section here, I put a big aha 
next to it. <laughs> also, because you're of your distinction there between private universities and public universities, which if we have time, we'll circle back to in a second. But you wrote here in the introduction, the First Amendment is framed to ensure a negative right, the right to be free from government interference. But free speech also entails an affirmative right to speak out, which is really what the book is about, a liberty that cannot be fully guaranteed in law and must be enabled by society through education and opportunity. When we consider why we value free speech, it's truth-finding, democratic, and creative functions it also becomes clear that the freedom to speak narrowly construed isn't enough to guarantee these benefits. That's why at PEN America, we often talk of ourselves as not just champions of free speech, but also guardians of open discourse. I thought that was so great, so helpful to, to explain. Yeah, when we talk about free speech, we're not always just talking about free expression and why open discourse might be really a better term for what we're trying to get at in some of these conversations. Any thoughts about that? Yeah, sure. Look, I think much of what is protected as free speech, for example, under the First Amendment and under international law, frankly, does not foster open discourse, you know, mm -hmm. conspiracy theories, disinformation, uh, harassment, you know, those can mislead people, they can shut down uh, debate, they can force people to retreat and, and to sort of effectively lose their voice on social media because they're on the receiving end of so much vitriol. And so there is, there can be a tension between free speech and open discourse. Uh, there can be you know, speech that's inimical to other speech. When people are protesting a speaker to the point where they shout them down and that person can wait and cannot be heard, they're ex uh, exercising their own free speech rights, but they're also depriving people in an audience of the ability to hear something they want to hear. And they're depriving a speaker of uh, their ability to get their message across. And so we have to come to grips with these tensions and try to adjudicate them reasonably. Uh, and logically, and, and in so doing, I think it is worth always reminding ourselves of the reasons why we protect free speech in the first place, that it's not just uh, an end into itself, it's not just because it's enshrined in the United States Constitution, uh, you know, it's because we believe that it underwrites a series of societal goods that really matter to us, that it uh, fosters truth-telling, that it helps people distinguish between facts and fiction when the ideas can be exposed to uh, a marketplace, when they can be contested and questioned. Uh, we believe that it fosters better government policy, that will make better decisions in our democratic deliberations when everybody can play a part in those debates, when they can bring their perspectives to bear, when they can ask questions, when they can hold their leaders to account without having to worry about being thrown in jail. Uh, we believe that free speech is a catalyst for economic progress and innovation, that when you can uh, you know, bring up a new idea or call into question the way the company uh, or the community has always done something, uh, that that freedom can help move us forward collectively, that it's an enabler of artistic and creative freedom. You know, things like our publishing industry in this country, our film industry, uh, the art world, all depend on free speech to enable people to express themselves in those ways and to bring to us all the immense riches that we derive from 
our artistic and cultural spheres. And so, you know, if you keep in mind those underlying rationales for the defense of free speech, you know, the question of where the boundaries should lie, how far should we go in policing speech, what do we want social media companies to do, you know, all those sort of take on a bit of a different uh, cast and light that I think is, is, is more informative and informed and, and will lead to more strategic approaches that sort of make the most out of free speech and, and they allow us to uh, benefit from the ways in which free speech really enhances our society. Those are such great points that are made really well in the book, along with a lot of detail. You know, there's a lot of in the in the book that's quite enlightening about how things operate in other countries. So you learn almost by negative examples some of the benefits that we have in the United States and why these ideals are so really so, you know, to me, they're just very American ideals. The dare to speak in a lot of ways is a how-to guide which I thought was great. I hadn't anticipated that. I thought it was going to be more of an academic book, but it's really very practical. So for those of you out there who are looking for ways to talk about free speech or think about free speech, as Suzanne was just saying, you know, to frame the conversation in a different way, I think you'll find a lot that's really useful and applicable in the book. One of the things you talk about, which I think is helpful also, is sometimes when we defend free speech or open discourse in a practical, tactical way, it sounds like we're defending really horrible speech. You know, if we're saying, well, someone should be allowed to come and speak at a place and not be interrupted or harassed or have their meeting canceled, you know, it can feel like, oh, I'm supporting that particular person. And sometimes it's hard to say, no, you know, I'm defending their right to be able to speak. But I think what they're saying is horrific. I, you know, I would not go or not want to support them. Do you have any advice about explaining that to somebody that when we defend someone's right to speak, we're not necessarily endorsing what they say? Yeah, look, I devote a whole chapter. The, the book, just for the benefit of any listeners, is organized around 20 chapters, each of which articulates a different principle for how I believe we can live together in our diverse, digitized, and divided society without curbing free speech. And there are five principles to consider when you're in your role as a speaker, five to think about when you're in your role as a listener, hearing out someone else, five to think about when debating free speech questions, and five to consider when contemplating free speech policy, so government policy. And I devote a whole chapter uh, to defending the right to voice unpopular speech, because I think it's so important that we not apply the litmus test of whether we agree with the speech in order to defend it. If you, you know, the minute you do that, you drop the principle. You're saying, you know, people have, should have free speech rights, uh, you know, if their message is one that I can endorse. And, you know, of course, the danger of that is you're giving to authorities, whether it's uh, the government or the leadership of a private company or a social media platform, the discretion and the authority to police speech more aggressively. If you ask them to step in and silence speech that you disagree with or find objectionable, uh, you know, they you've given them that power. And the next time they may turn around and silence something that you think is very important or something that you're trying to say, uh, a message of your own that is in danger of being 
muzzle. So I think I advocate in the book and believe it's very important to adopt a principled approach and to be willing to stand up even for speech with which you disagree. And, you know, you can do more than one thing uh, at once. You can say, look, I, I don't agree with what so-and-so is saying. This is not how I look at this issue. Uh, I recognize that this could be hurtful to people, uh, that people may object or contest this, but I, I think he has a right to say it. He shouldn't be silenced. He shouldn't be shut down. You can disagree with him. You can argue with him. It can get contentious and heated. We're not saying, we're asking people to just stand down in the face of something that is profoundly objectionable to them or even denigrating. Uh, but we're saying we don't want to authorize the legislature, the police force uh, to come in and shut them up, haul them away. Uh, you know, rip, rip away their microphone or megaphone. And so I think it's very important to be able to articulate that, say, in a classroom where someone, you know, is feeling effectively censored or, you know, stigmatized to the point where uh, it, it becomes very difficult to articulate a point of view on a contentious issue, you know, whether that issue is abortion rights or immigrants' rights or, climate change or Israel-Palestine, we know that there are many conversations that are difficult to have. There are a lot of disincentives to articulating controversial ideas that people are at risk of being accused of uh, being racist or homophobic or transphobic or a lot of other things. And, you know, there, those issues are real. There's real bigotry out there. And sometimes that's what, what is going on. And someone is being harassing uh, or, or willfully demeaning. But there are also discussions of trying to come to grips with these issues that face our society and talk about trade-offs and pluses and minuses and different perspectives. And we need to have space for that without just uh, sort of slapping on the accusation that that is, you know, a form of phobia or a form of bigotry, because those putting those terms on it really does shut down the conversation. And I think that, you know, there, there are occasions when they deserve to be used, but it should be uh, sort of sparing. It's a very strange experience for me now that I'm older to observe the calls for censorship that are happening now. They come from groups that I wouldn't have anticipated that, and they come in a force that I wouldn't have anticipated. I think those of us of my age just sort of assumed that we would trundle along the way we always had, understanding the benefits of free speech. So that's been very surprising for me to see that free speech is sometimes being pitted against hate speech or misinformation. And you kind of alluded to that just a minute ago about who gets to decide. So help us understand how we balance those ideals. Yeah, look, one of my impetuses for wanting to write this book was a concern that we were in danger of losing the faith of a rising generation in the principle of free speech and that young people were increasingly seeing free speech as a smokescreen for hatred. And that concern, I'd say, first arose some years ago when there was a series of incidents on college campuses where students were staunchly objecting to conservative speakers. There was an incident at Middlebury College where Charles Murray, uh, the conservative critic who uh, had had a very controversial book decades ago was coming to campus and he 
effectively was shouted down, couldn't give his talk. And then when he and a professor were being sort of spirited out of the building, they were attacked by a violent mob and she was severely injured. And there were other incidents at, at University of California at Berkeley where a conservative provocateur wanted to come to campus, Milo Yiannopoulos, and he was shut down. An incident at Yale where there was a huge fracas over guidance over about Halloween costumes and a uh, residential college leader who had called into question whether the university should be policing Halloween costumes and suggested that it was a form of infantilization. And so in each of these instances, you saw impassioned students uh, really arguing that objectionable or offensive speech or ideas with which they disagreed sort of had no place on the campus and that those ideas were dangerous and incendiary and hurtful. And, you know, what occurred to me is, you know, at one level I sort of understood, I understand where students are coming from insofar as they are invested in the quest to make our institutions and our society more equitable, more inclusive, to address the stubborn legacy and the unfinished business of the civil rights movement, uh, you know, to tackle questions of racial justice at a deeper level than has previously been done. And I think that is a very valid and noble and important and necessary quest. I think it's elemental to the fulfillment of our constitutional values and 14th Amendment commitment to equality. I also think uh, that it, it is a boon to free speech. If you have groups of people that are effectively excluded from the discourse by virtue of uh, bias and bigotry, because they have uh, been denied educational opportunities, because they lack uh, mentors and role models and people who support them to be able to speak out and participate fully in a classroom discussion, that is a loss for free speech. That's a loss to the marketplace of ideas. You have some people who are shut out, who can't offer their wares, who can't uh, bring their perspective to the discussion. And so I think the quest for equality is one that is in furtherance of the, the benefits of free speech. But as you say, what we have seen is that it can also be pitted against free speech protections. There can be a sense of people saying that in the name of protecting the vulnerable and siding with those who are marginalized uh, and excluded, that sometimes it is necessary to ban and suppress speech. If that speech is offensive, if it compounds that sense of marginalization or exclusion, then banning or punishing it is justified because in the name of a higher good. And what I argue very staunchly in the book and in a lot of my other work is that that's a false trade-off, that we shouldn't be uh, compromising free speech protections in the name of equity inclusion. We don't need to, that ultimately, everybody benefits from uh, robust protections for free speech that particularly the vulnerable are actually the ones historically who depended the most on free speech protections. It's those who are outside of power who are the most vulnerable to particularly the government uh, coming in to try to suppress and silence what they have to say. We see this all over the world with dissidents, uh, you know, in China, in Russia, in Iran. It's those who are powerless who are trying to challenge the government who are subject to the harshest forms of repression and who have the least leeway to speak their minds. And so 
I think it's extremely important as we pursue social justice movements to recognize that free speech rights really in, in this country and in, in rights respecting countries underwrite our ability to wage those social movements, uh, to go out in the streets and demand climate justice or demand gun control or demand reproductive rights, you know, our ability to petition the government to for students to do a walkout and not get punished, uh, you know, to take over a public park uh, and have a demonstration. All of that is undergirded by the First Amendment. If, if we didn't have the First Amendment and governments, you know, say in certain states wanted to suppress that and to shut that down, they could simply do so. And they do do that uh, all over the world where free speech rights are not protected. I think that's a great point that is made several times in your book about, again, you know, it's education of learning how marginalized voices, voices that aren't always heard, that aren't amplified, are hurt by a lack of free speech rights in other countries. And, you know, that's part of really what I think is such a such a good job you've done in the book about educating people. I've wondered if we haven't done a good job in general about educating young Americans about free speech and the what the benefits that it brings to countries and examples of what happens to powerless people when there isn't free speech protection. Do you feel as though that somehow we're not explaining this well as young people are maturing and understanding? Or do you think we could do a better job with that? Yeah, I do worry about that. I mean, we have really moved away from civic education as kind of a mainstay in our elementary and secondary schools where, you know, students are really immersed in the First Amendment and our other uh, Bill of Rights freedoms and why we protect them and, you know, the degree to which they're protected, understanding what is protected. We see in surveys that it's a a small percentage of Americans that can name the uh, freedoms that are enshrined in the First Amendment. And so I think there is a real risk that we are sort of losing our moorings when it comes to this fundamental principle. And one of the things that we've done at PEN America in recent years is started free speech institutes for young people uh, where we bring them in and we expose them to these ideas. We also bring them together with our experts who work around the world who could talk about what the situation is in Russia, uh, in Iran, in China, for writers, for dissidents, for people who want to speak their minds and the punishments that they face. And it really does help students to recognize, you know, hey, wait a minute, it might seem like a good idea to have somebody arrested for saying something hateful, but that power, once we afford it to our government, you know, can really be used in nefarious ways. And, and that it ultimately will be used to reify the, the prerogatives of those in government, that they will use it in self-serving ways, the more power that we have. And I think we saw this during the Donald Trump administration. He went after his critics. He went after journalists and media companies that he thought uh, were his antagonists, that were critical of him. Uh, you know, He made threats. He retaliated against them. And I think he would have gone much further had it not been for the First Amendment uh, that you know, if he had been able to jail journalists, uh, you know, or fine them or shut down some of the media companies that he saw as most hostile, 
you know, I think he would have done that. And, you know, he was interested in remaining in power. He didn't like criticism. And so, you know, what would have there been to stop it? And that's why these rights are so, and protections are so important. Yeah, it goes back to this question that I raised a second ago about who decides. There are a couple places in your book where, well, actually the book is really well organized and it has some nice summary pages at the end of each chapter, but also almost like some checklists or, you know, hey, things to keep in mind. And you have one about the dangers of allowing government to decide what should be uh, repressed and what should be allowed. And another chapter where you talk about the dangers of allowing private corporations to decide what should be repressed and what should be allowed. And they're really good lists. I didn't see on there, though, I was going pretty fast yesterday, so maybe I missed it. But, you know, it can also be a combination of the two, right? The government could put pressure on a private corporation to suppress certain things. So it's not as though they're exclusionary. But in any case, I think it's really important for us to think about, well, who gets to decide what speech gets repressed and what is allowed? And that is an example, as you say, for civic education, where we could see examples of how both corporations and governments have abused that power. No, that's right, because sort of someone has to decide and, and kind of giving nobody that power, you know, any power is not a solution. I mean, we see very clearly on social media that there are significant harms that can result from online speech that go far beyond what damage can be caused, for example, by somebody distributing pamphlets in a public square or giving a speech. Spe uh, digital speech moves so quickly. It moves without context. It can uh, you know, spark a rebellion uh, on the other side of the world or provoke a murder. And we've seen all of that happen. Uh, it can inspire uh, attacks, violent attacks. And so we have to come to grips with that very destructive potential uh, that exists on social media in relation to speech. I think we need companies to take responsibility for that, to take aggressive action and trying to identify and mitigate those harms. There are also, of course, grave implications for freedom of speech. I mean, one of the things I argue in the book is that I think, you know, and I think this has been borne out just in the period since the book was published, that there uh, was going to be more and more pressure on social media companies to address the harms of online speech. And that in the course of doing so, it's extremely important that they put in place safeguards for free speech and legitimate discourse, that there uh, were going to be more and more what we call in content moderation, digital content moderation, false positives. So content that actually has nothing wrong with it, that might be about somebody's dog, or it's uh, you know a, a satirical commentary, it's something uh, comedic, it's an inside joke that might be considered by an AI bot or even by another social media uh, user to be hateful or to be otherwise violating of a company's policies to be, for example, false information uh, on a public health issue. And yet when carefully scrutinized and understood in context, it actually isn't that. Uh, it's, it's being misinterpreted, uh, you know, often by systems that where you have either human moderators who are working at a lightning pace or expected to review many hundreds of posts uh, in a day 
you know, looking in a matter of seconds at whether something belongs up on a platform or should be taken down. Uh, and then you now have increasingly automated systems that are doing that work and they're inevitably going to make mistakes. And the question really becomes, what is the recourse of the speaker when that mistake is made? And, you know, if you've ever been subject to a ban or uh, the deletion of a post on social media, you know that there, that recourse is minimal, that this you know, makes the customer service at a place like Verizon or Visa uh, you know, look like white glove because it's impossible to get a human being on the line. There's no number to call. Uh, these companies don't look at the user as their customer because you're not paying for the service. They're, the customer are, are their advertisers. You actually are, are, are the product uh, as a social media user. And so I think that's one thing in the name of free speech protection and out of a recognition of the degree to which these social media companies have really become our de facto public square and the, the, the vast swath of our discourse that takes place on social media that they have an obligation to put in place more robust safeguards. And actually, you know, it's beginning to happen through legislation in the European Union. They've passed now some very robust new digital legislation that does require uh, you know, far more extensive and accessible appeals procedures for people whose content is uh, taken down uh, when if they believe that it's 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 happened for no good reason and, and it cannot be justified. Uh, you know, they are now entitled to a much swifter recourse to try to get it restored. Another topic that you talk about in the book that I thought was so valuable was talking about the distinction between violence and speech. And <laughs> it was funny. I'd been thinking about posting on Twitter, just that old thing we used to say when I was in elementary school, sticks and stones can break my bones, but words will never hurt me. And you mentioned that in the book, which made me chuckle. And of course, words can hurt, right? Words really can hurt a lot. But there is a difference between sticks and stones and words. And so can you run us through a bit about why confusing those two is so dangerous? Yeah, sure. A couple of things. I mean, first of all, I think historically, traditionally, free speech advocates have been hesitant to admit to the harms that speech can cause for fear that in so doing, they're opening the door to censorship. That if you acknowledge that, you know, words... Uh, can hurt, that they can cause lasting harm, you know, why wouldn't that be a justification for the government to go further than the First Amendment or international law would allow in policing and suppressing speech? And so that hesitancy, I understand, but I think the defense of free speech is more compelling uh, and more up-to-date uh, in our discourse today if we acknowledge that speech can cause harm. And I cite research in the book going through how, particularly for people who are subject to slurs and stereotyping their whole life, where they're making their way in the world, being subject to a barrage of comments about their race, their gender identity, uh, their religion, that this can cause psychological harm, it can impair academic performance, it can even cause physiological harm. And that's been documented. And so I think we're more honest and more credible if as free speech defenders, we own up to that, we acknowledge that, we don't try to hide that. It's also true that the harms of speech can be exaggerated, they can be projected, they can be imagined. 
uh, you know, and I think we see the language of harm invoked too often, frankly, in relation to speech and too loosely. Uh, and I don't think offense and harm are the same thing. Mm-hmm. Uh, and that we we need to make space for speech that is offensive and treat that, you know, as, as sort of part of our discourse, even if it may be considered objectionable. What I disagree with Uh, even though I acknowledge the harms of speech, is equating speech with physical violence, Uh, you know, which sort of is an increasing trope. People saying that uh, offensive or hateful speech kind of equals physical violence. And I think, you know, in the book, I kind of trace it back to Toni Morrison's Nobel Prize speech when she won the uh, prize for literature. And if she does say words or violence, and I think she, what she meant was that there was an insufficient recognition of the harms that speech can cause, that that was being minimized. And that because those harms weren't being felt by those in the dominant position by, you know, for example, white people, that there was a kind of tendency to brush it aside and not come to grips with it. And that, you know, she wanted to push back and sort of say, look, you know, words are really powerful. Uh, And so she used this, um, you know, kind of turn of phrase that uh, words are violence, I think, as a way to draw attention to that point, a kind of hyperbole. Uh, But I think it's dangerous to equate speech and violence. If you do so, you know, if I say something uh, that is so objectionable to you that it's the tantamount to violence, why are you then not justified in punching me in the nose in response? You know, surely a violent response could be justified. And, you know, in our country, you know, in any civilized country, we, we want the state to have a monopoly on violence. We don't want individuals getting into that kind of fray. So that's one problem. There's also the issue of, you know, imagine a protest where people are saying provocative things about men in blue. Uh, and and they're criticizing the police. You know, if that's a form of violence, why aren't the police justified in responding? They could use force uh, in reaction to violence. So I, th- I just think it's a very problematic equation, and that we don't need it in order to, you know, forthrightly acknowledge the the, the genuine harms of speech. I absolutely agree that it's not to our for those of us who are interested in preserving free speech and open discourse. It's not to our advantage to pretend that harm doesn't come from words. So, yeah, it's not quite the case that words will never hurt me. Words can hurt me. But we have to recognize that there's a trade-off that's happening there. And I'm especially noticing that there seems to be a sort of wavering mm, line or a disappearing line between people feeling physically safe and psychologically safe. So I see this language being used a lot where people will object to to speech and say, I don't feel safe. And of course, you know, sometimes that draws a whole bunch of ridicule upon them. But, you know, I kind of understand it. The use of that phrase, I don't feel safe, worries me. Do you have a reaction to that or what do you think? Yeah, I do, because I think it's kind of an invocation of the language of harm, oftentimes under circumstances when it's it's exaggerated and it's not justified. And I think, you know, what people are saying, which I do understand, is that certain speech makes you feel unsettled, uncomfortable. You know, you can have a pit in your stomach. Uh, you can feel, you know, really quite miserable and uneasy. It can evoke 
past trauma, uh, you know, of all kinds. And so it can have these deep and significant effects. To me, that's not making you unsafe. Uh, and I think it's very important to draw the distinction between physical safety. I think, for example, college campuses should always be physically safe. You shouldn't have to worry about being, you know, attacked or shoved or harassed uh, physically. But, you know, they can't really be entirely psychologically safe. You know, there are certain protections against, for example, uh, harassment and, and denigration on campus. And I think, you know, that's appropriate. If somebody's using a racial or a religious slur, I think it's legitimate to have rules on a campus that, uh, you know, that is inappropriate. If it's being used in a deliberate way uh, in order to demean someone and, and to deny them their opportunity for an equal education by making them feel so uncomfortable, uh, you know, that's a real issue. And our laws recognize that in the first, under the First Amendment, there are exceptions for harassment. Harassment can be uh, banned and, and punished uh, and is, uh, you know, particularly in the workplace and in other settings. But, you know, it, when it comes to, for example, what's going on in a classroom and the idea that, you know, a discussion of a, a fraught issue like rape or sexual assault, you know, makes someone feel unsafe, you know, I think is, is problematic because it shuts down our ability to have discourse on these questions, to study academic theories, to, you know, weigh up how to address, you know, tough questions of policy. What should public policy be? You know, how do you deal with the rights of the accused in these contexts? And so, I think the invocation of safety, you know, I think there are probably some circumstances in which speech can make you feel genuinely unsafe, like there might be a mob that's about to go after you. And then there are other circumstances when uh, people invoke the language of safety to really talk about, uh, you know, something that I think is better described as, as, as comfort, and, you know, which is not to trivialize it. Because if you're, if you're in a situation, for example, on comp campus where you're constantly uncomfortable, you know, people are kind of constantly skirting the line, like say, you know, uh, say at a, you know, university where there aren't a lot of trans people, where trans identity is not widely accepted. I can see how you might be subject to some of that pervasive bigotry that really uh, you know, could up, upset your academic career and instill a kind of fear. So I think, uh, you know, we have to acknowledge that that may be real, but then also, you know, there are a lot of circumstances in which this language is invoked when it really is something uh, short of an actual threat to safety. Well, and it can't be the case that all, that's all it takes to shut somebody down, right? And I think there's something in your book about, yeah, a heckler's power or something like that. It can't be that just we get to complain and then that that thing goes away. No, that's right. I mean, the heckler's veto is a concept where, you know, if you're in an auditorium full of people and everybody wants to hear a certain speaker and yet there's one person, you know, in the audience who is an antagonist and they're speaking out and they're shouting and they won't allow the speech to progress, you know, they're effectively vetoing the ability of you know, 200 or 300 people to uh, receive the information that they want to receive. I mean, the First Amendment and international law protect not just the right to impart information, but the right to receive information. And so that right is being 
uh, denied and deprived. It's one example of how free speech rights may be pitted against each other. Uh, you know, the, the, the heckler is exercising free speech rights, but with the result that is censorious. And so different universities have sort of different policies on that. Some uh, are quite clear that when it comes to interfering with the rights of others to receive and impart information, that, uh, you know, your free speech rights sort of end at the point where they cross over into that. Yeah, it gives us a window into the complexity of some of these issues. And, you know, I think that's another thing when we think about free speech, I think often we think of it sort of, you know, like daffodils and lollipops, that it's this great thing that's just lovely and added on to the world. But it is the case often that open discourse does make you uncomfortable. And that's kind of its purpose, right? And I, I definitely have experienced that in my lifetime where I hear some ideas I've never heard before. And, you know, they make me uncomfortable because they challenge my own assumptions or presumptions. So yeah, I think we have to be a little careful to not pretend that free speech is going to be a great, happy birthday party. You know, it, it, it can be tough, right? It can bring up very uncomfortable topics. No, that's true. And I, look, I also talk extensively in the book about the obligations of the speaker and that there is an obligation to be conscientious with language, that, uh, you know, we, we should not just be willy-nilly offending one another and oblivious to, for example, how people want to be described or what names or pronouns uh, you know, they prefer to use that in order to live in a diverse pluralistic society, I think there's an obligation as a citizen to be conscientious with language, to think about you know, who your audience is, to consider how you're going to phrase or word something and to avoid uh, you know, creating constant friction uh, you know, through your speech. I think, you know, if you do that to me, you're not utilizing your free speech rights responsibly. And it also interferes with your ability to get your message across. If you're trying to persuade someone of your point of view, and instead you offend them by using the wrong pronoun, you know, that's really not a win. Uh, and so, you know, I think these responsibilities and principles, uh, I think of them as interlocking. Uh, I think, you know, recognizing the harms of speech is an impetus to being conscientious with language. I think if people are conscientious with language, uh, it makes it easier to defend the unpopular speech. It's easier to defend unpopular speech if it's been phrased in a, you know, respectful, civil tone, if it's not just some crazy provocateur mouthing off in a way that seems either deliberately offensive or is sort of almost willfully negligent uh, in terms of what the sensitivities might be. And so, you know, the book really is intended to offer a sort of interlacing set of principles that I think we can follow to try to keep free speech free without having it be uh, a constant source of contention. So things have happened since the book was published. Uh, COVID happened. And um, also, the we just had this recent small blip about the Disinformation Governance Board so I, I was disappointed that, of, I mean, this is the way it's going to be with this topic. Things are going to move on. There's always going to be something new to talk about. But I was curious to ask you about those two, that if you had been able to include them in your book, what you would have thought. So let's start with the Disinformation Governance Board. What do you think happened with that? You know, I think that they were trying to do something really important, which mm -hmm. is 
step up our government's ability to contend with disinformation originating from foreign governments, you know, which we have already seen repeatedly, uh, is you know can interfere with our democracy, can sow discord, can you know throw the results of elections, and you know can have really significant, severe consequences. It's it, you know it's a form of warfare that has been perfected uh, in recent years through social media. And so I think the, the idea that government has to kind of come to grips with this uh, is essential. And yet the rollout of this task force, this governance board, unfortunately, was, I think, bungled. Uh, there was not enough consultation with civil society. There was not enough thought about how to frame and phrase this uh, in a way that would explain to people what it was and what it wasn't. And this sort of narrative really got away from them. Uh, you know, there were online attacks and harassment of the woman who was appointed to chair the board. Uh, you know, people sort of dug into her Twitter and found uh, politically kind of sl sort of uh, slanted or weighted statements she had made and, you know, came to argue that she had a political agenda that she would be repressing conservative speech. And so, you know, it had to be dismantled. And, you know, I, my worry, my hope is that this problem is going to be confronted in a different way, you know, that it is being looked at, that there are existing structures and capabilities that can be built out and stood up to uh, address this threat, you know, but without the sort of public fanfare of the launch of this board that really, you know, triggered a tremendous backlash. What about COVID? So there was a lot of discussion during COVID of things that were being censored or repressed. What, what observations did you have about that? I mean, it was interesting in a lot of ways on social media, you know, what we saw actually was that the platforms had far greater ability to come to grips with dangerous and damaging content than they had previously been given credit for. I mean, they did a lot of work on COVID-related mis- and disinformation. Obviously, it, it was and remains a very fluid situation where, uh, you know, there's still doubts and debates about many aspects of COVID response, you know, how well masking actually works, you know, when, if ever a, a lockdown is warranted, uh, you know, how these different variants uh, each play out and, you know, how vulnerable you are, how serious they are. I mean, all that, you know, is still subject to, I think, kind of legitimate give and take and there are scientists who take different perspectives. And so, you know, the trick is trying to, sort of hold open the space for legitimate debate, but also suppress the, you know, the information that really is, is baseless and damaging, like hydroxychloroquine as a, as a cure for COVID at one point, uh, you know, or, I mean, very early on, there was statements to the effect that masks didn't work, uh, you know, and I think they were saying that public officials were saying it because they didn't have enough masks and they wanted the PPE, the personal protective equipment to be uh, funneled to doctors and frontline health workers, which is a legitimate policy objective, but I don't think it helped to say that masks don't work. You know, and I think they sort of had pretty good evidence even back then that actually masks do work in a situation like this. And so uh, I think there were some mistakes made. I think that on social media, what they you know did well was trying to direct people to uh, legitimate, credible sources of COVID-related information, health agencies. So if you searched 
for COVID, and you know, this is still true. If you search for COVID, for example, on Facebook, you get to a COVID information center that has, you know, facts that are verified. It has links to leading health organizations around the world, you know, places where you can turn for the best information. And so, you know, not just suppressing that which is uh, fraudulent or problematic, but also elevating uh, fact-based content was important. All right. My last question for you here, although it's a doozy, I was really surprised when I was reading your book to realize that the United States is really kind of an outlier when it comes to free speech and the, um, what would you call it? You know, the care with which the courts and our society take to keep the government from repressing speech. And I, I just hadn't realized before how the United States was really, you know, kind of an outlier about that. And so it made me start thinking a lot about other things that are unusual about the United States. So I was curious, and I know this is just going to sound like a, uh, like a, a softball question, but how much do you think our, mm, I wouldn't say preoccupation, but our interest and enthusiasm for protecting free speech contributes to the kind of country that we are? Yeah. I mean, I think that uh, it really does. It's such a proud American value, in my view. I mean, it is a value that is enshrined in international law and international legal protections for free speech are extensive. And, you know, I think you can have legitimate arguments about whether the limitations, the greater authority that governments have in places like Canada or the United Kingdom or Scandinavia to police speech, whether those are, you know, ultimately work to the good or to the detriment uh, of our discourse. And, you know, I think that's a legitimate subject to dis for, for discussion. My bias is toward our own system where those, you know, government prerogatives are the narrowest in the world. And I do think it has to do with, you know, both our identity as a very pluralistic country where there are, uh, you know, people from all backgrounds, you know, a country that has prized equality uh, over the years, albeit, you know, very imperfectly in, in terms of its realization, uh, a country that prizes creativity and innovation and is the world's kind of wellspring of publishing and film and television. So I think it is, you know, to me, an underpinning of much that is good and that we cherish about this country and attributes that we also recognize are vulnerable uh, and that we cannot take for granted that have come under pressure and threat, you know, especially and intensifyingly in, in recent years. And so uh, I think it's extremely important to try to revive American faith and fealty in freedom of speech. Oh, I feel extremely patriotic now. <laughs> so before I let you go, Suzanne, is there anything that you'd like to share with the audience about the book or the website? Sure. I mean, I just, if people are interested, I encourage them to buy the book. You can buy it uh, at Amazon or Bookshop. Uh, there are links at the Penn website at Penn.org. Uh, it's called Dare to Speak Defending Free Speech for All. Uh, and I also encourage you to join Penn America if you are a supporter of free speech. Uh, again, Penn.org. You can join as a member and we'd be grateful for your support and engagement. Thanks so much. Yeah, thank you so much for taking the time to talk to us. I tried not to fangirl all, all over you, but it was such an honor for me to be able to host you today. So thank you so much, Suzanne. Thanks so much. Take care. Bye. 
Thanks, everybody, for listening. We really appreciate it. Don't forget to check out the show notes for additional information about this episode. And give us a like or a thumbs up on Podomatic or wherever you listen to your podcasts. We'd also love to have your support on Patreon. And get in touch. We'd love to hear from you through the internet or Twitter or whatever means works for you. And finally, thanks to Caffeine Creek for the theme music. 